We mentioned a couple weeks ago how uh, uh, my nephew and I visited the Alhambra in Granada, Spain, and that it it is a remarkable building, a remarkable site, a remarkable complex of buildings, gardens, um, water supply, etc. But I was really struck by an odd thing in the Compton's Market in East Sacramento a few days back. I looked up on the wall and they had a painting of the old Alhambra Theater in Sacramento. I've lived for most of the last three decades in Sacramento and of course the Alhambra was long gone. The Alhambra Theater was, was torn down I believe in the 1970s and replaced by a Safeway. I know that a lot of the old timers in the neighborhood still will not shop at the Alhambra Safeway because they're mad about the fact that they tore down the theater which had a very distinctive architecture to it. Now, I remember when I was a college student back in the 70s at UCD driving through downtown Sacramento and uh, noticing the uh, the Tower Theater which was quite striking but uh, I don't believe I ever went to a movie there but this painting on the wall reminded me of what it looked like and it struck me that it did look like the Alhambra I mean it had these towers on it or tower-like structures that, that looked like the original and, and I guess for the first time it sort of dawned on me <laughs> that people who were still PO'd about them tearing down that uh, that theater uh, might have had a point it was not your basic strip mall octoplex Now, we've made a habit over the years of talking about the passing of um, notable personages. And we've not done so in a long, long time. And, and I think it's, it's, it's overdue. I think we need to do that on today's program. Particularly since in the past month or two, we have lost a lot of people of note. Although I want to start this off with an obituary from someone who I never even heard of until I read his obit. But I was so struck by it that I think I'm going to read what The Week had to say about him in its entirety, or nearly so. The man's name was Fred Kumarau. He was born in 1914 and died, um, I guess, last month. Said the article, in the 1950s, biochemist Fred Kumarau re- realized that Americans were being fed a lie. At the time, most doctors believed that saturated fats from animal products like meat and cheese were the key cause of heart disease thinking they increased people's levels of artery-clogging cholesterol. Kumarau's research at the University of Illinois led him to a different conclusion. He analyzed diseased arteries from two dozen people who had died of heart attacks and found they were filled with artificial trans fats, which were used to extend the shelf life of cookies, crackers, and other foods. Kumarau spent the next six decades fighting an often lonely battle to get trans fats banned. In 2015, the FDA finally declared trans fats unsafe for human consumption. Said Kumarau, science won out. He was then 100 years old. The obituary notes that early in his career, Kumarau helped develop a cure for pellagra, a disease that killed 100,000 Americans between 1900 and 1940. Pellagra was caused by a vitamin deficiency, which Kumarau solved by adding niacin to grits and other foods. Pellagra, as I was taught in medical school, 
was a disease generally only of the poorest people living in the American South who basically ate only grits. And it turned out that was a diet deficient in niacin, and the niacin deficiency was what caused the symptoms which came to be known as pellagra. The articles note that Kumarau maintained his lab at the University of Illinois until he was 101. It notes that he was never convinced that cholesterol was a major factor in heart disease. Into his 100s, his daily diet includes several glasses of whole milk and a breakfast of eggs scrambled in butter. I'm really struck by this article because when we took biochemistry classes, it was explained that, you know, trans fats are are not natural. You know, if you eat animal or vegetable products, you will not be consuming trans fats. At any rate, trans fats are not found in nature, but they are found in factories. When you work with vegetable oils to make them more liquid or more solid, in this case, more liquid, it's awful hard to explain without pictures, but but don't take my word for it. Take Fred Kumarau's word for it. That while these particular fats have some, you know, good qualities in terms of keeping food, you know, more stable longer, there was always a discussion in uh, in class as to, well, when we digest these fats, doesn't this cause a problem? Because your enzymes are not really set up to chop up this sort of fat because it's not really found in nature. And I don't have the answer to this, but I'm really disturbed to realize that three decades ago when I was a medical student, the dangers of trans fat, while sort of brought up and mentioned, were, were downplayed. And in fact, because of the pressures of the food industry, nothing was really done about this until two years ago. This seems to echo the um, discussions we've had of sugar and how uh, back in the 1970s, the sugar industry was able to divert attention away from sugar being the source of health problems instead focusing on fats. It does seem to me that an awful lot of what we accept as good science is really commercially driven to a degree that, you know, we all know is there. I mean, it's unavoidable, but to a degree I'm increasingly finding more and more disturbing to contemplate. And that's all I'm going to say about that today. Let's talk about a couple people we've lost from the world of sports. The first is Jimmy Pearsall. The obituary notes that when Jim Pearsall made the leap to the big leagues with the Boston Red Sox in the early 1950s, the slick fielding center fielders seemed to have limitless potential. But he was described as wildly mercurial, throwing tantrums and battling umpires, opponents, and teammates alike. Fans found the rookie entertaining, but his erratic behavior was the result of a serious psychological disorder. Pearsall, at least as is now described, suffered from bipolar disorder then referred to as manic depression. He recounted his struggles in the 1955 memoir, Fear Strikes Out. And I remember so well watching the movie version, the 1957 film version with Anthony Perkins in the role of Jim Pearsall, which is a pretty good film. The obituaries note that medication helped Pearsall cope with his disorder, but he maintained his zany reputation with goofy stunts, at one point, running to the plate in a Beatles wig or running around the bases backwards for his 100th career home run. Said Jim Pearsall, the best thing that ever happened to me was going nuts. Nobody knew who I was until that happened. Well, we're not sure he summarized that one correctly. 
after his career in baseball, and he lasted 17 seasons, two, two times being an All-Star. He retired and found new fame in the broadcast booth. He teamed up with Chicago White Sox announcer Harry Carey. Said the Chicago Tribune, their act was almost vaudevillian. Carey went off and asked Pearsall, well, did you take your pills today? Pearsall's unfiltered style, it should be noted, did keep him continually in a bit of hot water. He served up uh, withering critiques of management players and even the players' wives, whom at one point he referred to as horny broads. Pearsall never apologized for his impropriety. He said, I'm the goonie bird that walked to the bank. I'm doing better than most of the guys who said I was crazy. Another guy who did pretty well was Jack O'Neill. He was an amateur surfer in Northern California in the early 1950s, and O'Neill experienced the same problems every winter. I'm sure every summer, too, if you get right down to it. The water was just too damn cold. He and his friends had to end their surf lessons after an hour and huddle around burning tires in the beach to thaw out. Fed up with the chill, O'Neill decided to create a new kind of insulated swimwear which would keep surfers warm. His first two designs, bathing bottoms filled with PVC foam and a vest lined with plastic, were failures. But then in 1952, a pharmacist friend introduced him to an elastic compound called neoprene and the modern wetsuit was born. The product quickly became an essential for surfers who could now stay in the water for hours on end. And O'Neill's namesake company grew into the world's largest wetsuit supplier. The obits note that O'Neill proved to be a canny marketer. He won customers by dressing his children in his wetsuits and dunking them in ice baths at trade shows. As the news about this suit spread by word of mouth along the California coast, surfers started calling O'Neill from all around the world. He and his family moved down the coast of Santa Cruz, where he became an accomplished sailor. In 1972, O'Neill lost the sight of his left eye in a surfing accident, but he used the mishap to his advantage. He donned an eye patch, grew out his beard, and his piratical look became part of the O'Neill brand. O'Neill ceded control of the business to his son in 1985, but stayed active. He founded an environmental education program in 1996, went on to take nearly 100,000 children out to the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary aboard his 65-foot catamaran. O'Neill said, O'Neill said, I'm not much into business. I'm into the ocean. Also passing away in the last month or so was former Panamanian strongman Manuel Antonio Noriega. He was a one-time CIA asset who was ultimately ousted by the U.S. military in an invasion. He died in a Panama hospital this week at the age of 83. As a young military officer, Noriega has studied at the U.S. Armed Forces School of the Americas, which some people refer to as the School for Dictators. He helped the U.S. in various operations in the region, from spying on Cuba to funneling money and weapons to the Nicaraguan Contras. He became de facto leader of Panama in 83, but the U.S., according to reports, eventually turned on him, fed up with his drug smuggling and political repression. Well, I would have to question that item in the obituary. The intelligence agencies and military got, up, got fed up with Manuel Noriega for reasons that I think are still murky, but undoubtedly has something to do with drug running and money laundering. Truthfully, we don't really know the story of what happened to Manuel Noriega and why the U.S. felt it was necessary to militarily intervene in Panama. Some might argue that it was just to stay in practice. And at some future point, we're going to have to do a show talking about the, the international drug trade. 
because, well, suffice it to say, it's not as it is portrayed. But we ain't doing that one today. Also passing away in the last few weeks, one of the giants of television and politics, Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News. Back in 1967, Roger Ailes was just a young producer. He was working on the Mike Douglas show, daytime talk show that actually wasn't too bad. And the guest that came on one day in that year was Richard Nixon, the former vice president and presidential candidate. Nixon loathed TV, called the medium a gimmick. Said Roger Ailes, television is not a gimmick, and if you think that, you'll lose again. Impressed, Nixon hired Roger Ailes to run his TV strategy, and it was remarkably successful, as outlined in the book, The Selling of the President, 1968. Noted the obituaries, over the next five decades, Ailes demonstrated the power of the small screen. His media savvy helped elect Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and George Herbert Walker Bush win the presidency. He would then join forces with media magnate Rupert Murdoch to set up Fox News. Described as an unabashedly conservative counterweight to what Ailes called the Clinton News Network. With its liberal bashing and heated rhetoric, Fox News became the nation's most popular, influential, and divisive cable news channel. Until his abrupt ouster last year over sexual harassment allegations, Ailes wielded more power than most elected officials. He said, television is the most powerful force in the world. Politics is nothing compared to this. There's so much that has been said about Roger Ailes and so much that could be said, but I think at this point in today's program, all I'm going to say is, I'm glad that you're dead, you rascal you. And I admit that's a very uncharitable thing to say. But I'm not taking it back. In fact, I cannot resist adding to that um, something said by Linda Stassi in the New York Daily News, (laughs) which was, I know you're supposed to speak well of the dead, but... In Roger Ailes' case, I'm willing to make an exception. Adding, the lecherous Fox News founder who died last week only months after his leaving the company amid a flood of sexual harassment allegations essentially killed decency in TV news. By dressing blonde women anchors like high-priced escorts and packaging sexism, hate-spewing rhetoric, and rumor-mongering as fair and balanced news, he divided the country and paved the way for President Donald Trump. Good riddance. And of course, I know it's piling on, but I can't resist quoting Matt Taibbi in Rolling Stone, who referred to Ailes as the Christopher Columbus of hate, adding that Fox News portrayed the country as being overrun by atheists, feminists, terrorists, and minorities. Which sounds about right to us. Another large figure from the uh, political scene is Big New Brzezinski. Passed away a few weeks back. Brzezinski was President Carter's national security advisor. He played a pivotal role in U.S. foreign policy. He helped facilitate the 1978 Camp David peace accords between Egypt and Israel, and he was instrumental in normalizing relations with China. But, noted an obituary in the week, Brzezinski's four-year tenure was ultimately defined by his hawkish views on the Soviet Union. He encouraged Jimmy Carter to arm the Islamist militants fighting Soviet troops in Afghanistan. And that's a legacy which is worth discussing at some length. We don't have that length today, but the fact that the Soviet Union was induced into having its own Vietnam 
in Afghanistan was very much the doing of Zbigniew Brzezinski and the Central Intelligence Agency. And all that has followed, including 9-11, can trace roots right back to that ploy, that, uh, that, that bit of international chess between the superpowers that uh, involved getting uh, <laughs> the Mujahideen involved. Zbigniew Brzezinski also permanently delayed implementation of the 1979 SALT II treaty to limit the superpowers' nuclear arsenals. He had developed his deep distrust of the USSR at a young age. Born in Warsaw to a diplomat and his wife, he was stranded with his family in Canada by the 1939 invasion of Poland by the Nazi and Soviet forces. Brzezinski moved to the U.S. to study at Harvard and soon became an authoritative voice on foreign policy. He knew how to play the game. According to the New York Times, Brzezinski insisted on personally giving Jimmy Carter his daily intelligence briefing and froze out Secretary of State Cyrus Vance, who wound up quitting in 1980. And we have two really sad obituaries from the field of entertainment, uh, both of which, however, do uh, have great theme songs. Starting with... Yes, for my money, and I know Mr. Breland doesn't agree with this, but for my money, the best actor ever to play James Bond, without a doubt, had to have been Roger Moore. Mr. McGillan, for his part, like many people, does favor the original, Sean Connery, and I admit Sean Connery's pretty good. But for me, there was something about how Roger Moore didn't take it all that seriously and had just a little bit of a wink in his eye uh, as he portrayed this remarkable character. The obits note that Roger Moore was in many ways the antithesis of James Bond, the British spy he played from 1973 to 1985, a self-confessed coward, the actor was a hypochondriac and scared of heights, and he hated loud bangs. <laughs> Said Moore, every time I had to fire a gun, I blinked. They always had to go through the film and edit out the frame where I closed my eyes. Furthermore, he didn't even like vodka martinis, whether they were shaken or stirred. But as noted with his debonair charm, witty one-liners, and trademark raised eyebrow, Roger Moore became a hugely popular 007, a role he played more times than any other actor. Unlike his predecessor, Sean Connery, Moore, according to obituaries, wholeheartedly embraced Bond's inherent absurdity. He said, you can't be a real spy and have everybody in the world know who you are and what your drink is. That's just hysterically funny. Roger Moore studied acting as a youth in Britain. He made a failed attempt to make it big in Hollywood and returned to the UK where he scored his breakthrough on TV's The Saint, playing the rakish Simon Templar, a modern-day Robin Hood, who targeted wealthy villains. The series, which ran from 1962 to 69, established Moore as a credible leading man. In 1973, he debuted as Bond in Live and Let Die, which is one of the better theme songs, among the many good theme songs for Bond movies. The LA Times noted he brought a fresh sense of comedy to the role. He dispatched thugs with a nonchalant one-liner. He had no head for heights, he said, after kicking a baddie off a cliff, and for your eyes only. After his seventh Bond film, Roger Moore called it a day. That was A View to a Kill in 1985. He said, There are only so many young women a 58-year-old actor can kiss without looking like a perverted grandfather. He remained self-deprecating about his own success, saying, I had only three expressions as Bond. Right eyebrow raised, 
left eyebrow raised, and eyebrows crossed when grabbed by the bad guy. And while it might not rank up there with the greatest of the Bond theme songs, as far as TV themes go, it's hard to beat this one. Yes, Neil Hefty's version of the Batman theme was a wonderful addition to what has to be one of TV's great comedy programs. Batman, when it debuted 50 years ago in 1967, was, to say the least, a smash hit. Its success was so overwhelming that noted actors throughout Hollywood fought to gain the role of guest villain for that week's program. Now, they had several regulars among the villains. Burgess Meredith's Penguin, Frank Gorshin's The Riddler, my personal favorite, Cesar Romero's The Joker, and Julie Newmar as Catwoman. But you also had Victor Bono's King Tut, Vincent Price's The Egghead, and Eli Wallach's Mr. Freeze. Well, they were all so wonderfully played off by <laughs> the Cape Crusader himself, Adam West, as what I still think is the definitive Batman. It was done for comedy. There are people today, of course, there's been a great revision of, of the Batman uh, a series via its, its multiple movie appearances. But the Batman of the silver screen it just tends to be so over-the-top serious. And how can you really be that serious when you're wearing a cape and a cowl and driving the Batmobile? No, I have to go with the, uh, the Adam West portrayal uh, of the show produced by William Dozier. And Burt Ward was quite wonderful as, as Robin. I, I have the entire set, and, and with, the, with the passing of Adam West who unfortunately had a hard time working because when you are that blazing a figure in popularity, boy, you, you do get typecast. I mean, you can't get any other role because to everybody, you're Batman. But oh, what a great Batman he was. I pulled out several episodes recently and just, just howled. Adam West's deadpan delivery, playing off of Burt Ward, and as well as uh, Alan Napier as Alfred, uh, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Gordon, and Stafford Rep as <laughs> Police Chief O'Hara. It just doesn't get much better than that. The person responsible for the bulk of the scripts, uh, oh, his name escapes me at the moment. I don't have the obit in front of me. Um, but there were a lot of guest writers. A lot of people wanted to be part of this successful effort because it was just blazing such a path across Hollywood. Of course... Sometimes the brighter you, know, you burn, the quicker you burn out. Batman came and went in three seasons. I just, I just have to laugh thinking about it. Something, of course, happens that the police are you know, completely incapable of figuring out, so they look at one another. So Commissioner Gordon looks over at Chief O'Hara, and they take a look at the red bat phone. <laughs> and, you, you know, when the commissioner says, Chief O'Hara, once again, we must take our cracked pitcher to the well of the Caped Crusaders. If you can't get a chuckle out of the likes of that, check your pulse. Adam West was, uh, was, was well-liked, apparently, which is kind of an unusual thing in Hollywood by most of the people that worked with him. And although he lamented the fact that he, after the explosive success of, of Batman, he had a hard time getting work, he did eventually work his way back in doing a lot of voiceover work. And he discovered that you could actually make some money by attending the various comic conventions 
and just, you know, sharing the love with the fans. Now, I don't know how much money he made for signing a book or doing an autograph, but I think he got by pretty well. Although one recollection I have over uh, Adam West's voiceover work that still, still makes me laugh was that sometime in the early 80s, one of the wine companies decided to um, put together a commercial featuring Adam West and Ava Gabor. The two were affecting the styles of, you know, wealthy sophisticates as they sipped on whatever wine it was they were pitching. Now, the ad was played pretty straightforward, and I think they were doing their job properly. But KLOS DJ, Fraser Smith, decided to have a little bit of fun with it. So as Ava Gabor was playing off Adam West and praising the wonderful qualities of the wine they were drinking, Smith slowly raised in the background the theme song to television's Green Acres. And uh, whatever praiseworthy things Adam West and Ava Gabor were, were, were stating about the wine were pretty much lost when all you could hear in the background was this faint version of dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And I'm not sure I'm even beginning to do it, to do, do that justice at how funny it was, but I uh, just trust me, it was funny. And someone who's not really a subject for an obituary, but I think more a loving tribute at this point, having passed many years back as screen legend Cary Grant, I'm sorry to note that I missed the Showtime special, which aired last um, June 9th about, about Cary Grant. What's described as an evocative documentary tells the story of the actor's perspective using the words of an unpublished memoir, as spoken by actor Jonathan Price. Evidently, among Grant's fascinating stories was his discovery in the 1950s that therapeutic amounts of LSD could vanquish his demons. Yes, Cary Grant was an acid head. When I was on my trip, I mentioned the name Cary Grant, and it just, at the time, didn't register with with my nephew. The quote from him is one of my all-time favorites. Said Cary Grant, and this is is a paraphrase, not an exact quote, but said Cary Grant, You know, everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Why, even I want to be Cary Grant. Which uh, I just love because, of course, he wasn't Cary Grant. He was Archibald Leach, a cockney. And if you'll forgive me, I think it's fair to say that nobody wants to be Archie Leach. So it was that he came to Hollywood. Mae West took a look at him, cast him in a movie, and, you know, he never looked back after that. And he eventually, well, I think the way he described it was, well, I became him, or he became me, or we met in the middle somewhere. And I think that's a great rule that probably applies to an awful lot of actors and their personas. All right, that was a lot of obituaries, but I think all those people are worthy of comment. They actually were, each and every one, worthy of a heck of a lot more in the way of commentary, but I wanted to at least do that much in their honor. And if you've got any great stories you want to share about any of the people we talked about or anything else you've heard in today's program, feel free to, and we depended upon you to do this, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. If he gets anywhere with his beaver relocation project, you will be the first to hear about it. He has been counseled to obtain some thick gloves. I say this having had the hell bitten out of my left hand once by an angry squirrel. The beaver is, of course, a much more formidable rodent. You have been listening to... Radio Parallax, 
I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we look forward to seeing you next week and the week after that and quite a few weeks over this summer. Thank you.